Hello, and welcome to What We Brought Home with your hosts, Mike Izzo and Pat McGinty. We invite military veterans to anonymously share their stories of war and service, specifically the stories that they hide from the world. The stories featured on this podcast often include sensitive topics like death and violence that might be triggering for some. At times, you might even hear us or our guests laugh at situations that are actually quite serious. Like other jobs that involve life or death situations, grim and ironic humor is often a way to cope. Listener discretion is advised. Also at times, you may notice breaks in the audio. We take anonymity very seriously and we edit stories to protect the identities of the storyteller and others involved. Finally, if what you hear in this episode reminds you of one of your own experiences and you want to share your story, let us know. If it's something from your time in service that you often think about, but rarely talk about, you're not alone. We're here to listen with no judgment. All stories are shared anonymously. Go ahead and visit our website, whatwebroughthome.com, to learn more. Welcome, everyone, again to another episode of What We Brought Home. Uh, I'm here with Pat, and we're here with our next storyteller, um, she is an Army veteran uh, and a former pilot, and uh, she's going to tell us about uh, about her time on deployment. And uh, and you know, as always, I'll get out of the way and uh, let our storyteller go. So, uh, welcome and thank thank you for joining us. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me. This is an interesting opportunity. So I, I start off explaining I was 24 years old, responsible for. Uh, second in command, responsible for 110 people in an uh, Apache helicopter, multi-helicopter task force. So my unit was primarily responsible for um, keeping the helicopters in the air, all different varieties that we had at the time. And then I also served additional duties as an Apache helicopter pilot. So I believe this is uh, about two weeks in to the uh, to my actively flying on the mission sets the unit's been there for about two months now and um, I'm also like two weeks shy of my 25th birthday so this is a pretty exciting time for me to finally be serving in the uh, in the military in this capacity to be deployed and support my country um, joined the army at 18 so if you think like it was a seven year journey to get to probably the most important part and the thing that everybody tells you you're training for, this is, this is the big time now. Um, so being on the morning or the daytime mission set, you don't expect to get um, super exciting missions. It's considered to be relatively tame and low speed. Um, and one morning we get a call immediately from the base, um, our operations people. And they're like, you got to go. You got to go now. Something bad has happened. Uh, so we're like, something bad? What do you mean something bad? They're like, you got to go now. The team that was on mission this morning, um, things are getting a little out of hand. There's a convoy, and it's been stranded, and you've got to get up in the air to protect them. And we're like, whoa, okay. We've got to drop everything and go now to support a mission that, that hasn't gone as planned. So we, we go across the mountain range. We 
we get to the village. We do a handover with the set of Apaches that are on overhead. And immediately you start trying to understand what the convert, what's going on. So the American convoy with the Afghans, with the high-ranking individual in this criminal organization that they've been sent to get, are now sitting in the open in now uh, broad daylight. I think like, um, you know, the sun is all the way up at this point. You can see everybody, everybody feels very exposed. Their vehicles are out and they have um, two deadline vehicles, both the lead vehicle and the trail vehicle have both been hit by IEDs. And almost like uh, they were waiting for us, as soon as we came overhead, um, ground fire starts kicking off. So small arms and machine guns coming from inside of homes, inside of these villages, and they're just peppering these vehicles. People can't put their heads up. People can't return fire. These are in uh, homes that we can't necessarily uh, confirm are are clear of innocent combatives, and so very quickly on station, um, it kind of devolves into just everybody trying to take cover and be safe. Eventually, the cover lifts. Uh, we're having a good conversation about okay, everyone's okay, nobody's been hurt. Great. They start to maneuver around um, the convoys, and as an Apache, and my duties that day were co-pilot gunner. Um, my responsibility was to talk to the to the fire's commander on the ground. So there's someone that was in charge of the overall convoy. And then there's someone who has a very specific job of talking to people like aircraft or any artillery fire that might come in if you know, you're close to a base. If you've ever played Call for Duty, that, that call for fire function, I think uh, is how it shows up where you can put at a different spot on the map. So think about the person who would coordinate like where on the map um, those freebies you get should be. It's a very important person. They're trained. They get extra training to learn how to talk to aircraft, to learn how to clear safety zones around themselves. So it's not uh, an easily replaceable position. Um, yeah, right there. So they're basically telling you where, where to, you have, you have very big weapons on your aircraft and they're telling you where to yes. shoot them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And uh, at this point, because they've lifted the fire, we're starting to understand. He's like, Hey, I'm in, in the center of the convoy to the north of the convoy. You know, I have this. Do you see me? And walking me in on his position and telling me who all the friendlies are. So really painting the picture. So eventually that firefight kind of peters out and, uh, and we stay overhead. And for about another five to ten minutes, it seems calm. So the powers that be decide, all right, it's okay to send in the medevac helicopters because we weren't going to send them into an active firefight. The injuries were very... Uh, you know, they seem very serious to the person who receives them, but in the grand scheme of things, the people were going to be okay, but, you know, we should get to the doctor as soon as possible, but it's not worth putting an entire helicopter at risk for um, during a firefight. Firefight dies down. It's been lower for a little bit. They go ahead and clear. Let's bring in the medevac helicopter. So another thing that we're responsible for the Apache team is making sure that the medevac helicopter gets there okay. So as the helicopters are closer to the, you know, what has now become an ambush site, um, we're responsible for making sure nobody shows up with one of those shoulder-powered or shoulder-fired weapons and shoots a helicopter down while it's trying to land. So as the, as the medevac helicopters get closer, you know, we're paying much more attention to what's going on. And again, we're seeing people, like, move along the roads, to the 
to the outside of the convoy, but we don't think anything of it. Medivac comes, like, deceptively no action. Nobody even tries to shoot just a normal small arms weapon off in their direction. The injured get on the helicopter, and they leave with almost no issue. In between the medevac helicopter actually landing and the, the wait that it took for them to get there, um, the fire commander, the fire NCO, asks us to, hey, why don't you guys just go ahead and scan up and down the road um, for the direction we want to go back to base to make sure that there aren't any other IEDs. So I task my sister ship um, to look up and down the roads because there's, there's two of us, so I'm staying on the friendlies, and the sister ship is trying to, like, if the next path will be clear, if the convoy that's coming to get them, if there's been any roadblocks set up between now and then. Doesn't appear to be any, um, but we're looking. We're looking for disturbed earth. We're looking for somebody actively burying an IED, an uh, improvised explosive device in the road. We're looking for anything unusual that you wouldn't see out on a road on a normal um, Afghanistan, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, whatever the day of the week is. We're looking for like normal patterns of life. So that's kind of like our, our also task while the medevac is in route. When the medevac leaves, I'm on the radio with the fire's NCO, and I'm telling him, hey, everything appears to, to look normal. It's just normal patterns of life, people going out to work in the fields, uh, people along the roads. And he's telling me, okay, um, we're, we're going to go ahead and start moving out. So they, he gives them the order to go ahead and start, like, they still can't go anywhere, but they're trying to stay busy. So like, all right, we're going to pack up the vehicles again. And at that time, the small on fire, like, really kicks up, and the fire's NCO starts uh, maneuvering along the road. And he walks through a path um, right where the medevac helicopter had just landed. And, you know, everybody's tone on the radio is much higher now because they're getting shot at. And he's trying to move around, and he starts to give an order over the radio, and he's, he's trying to tell us to look a certain direction. And I just happened, I was like looking left, looking right, taking in everything that's going on, like where are these people coming from? Where are these shots coming from? And as I, I'm just naturally looking like back towards where I know he is, and while he's trying to tell me like what direction to look, um, I... I hear his voice like abruptly stop on the radio and I see him uh, now uh, being blown through the air. So he had stepped on an improvised explosive device uh, that was in the same spot as where our helicopters had just landed. So um, I think the assumption was made that it was safe to walk there because had there been an IED, um, they, they would have triggered it because a helicopter weighs a lot more than a human being in right. full battle battle. Mm -hmm. um, and what I have since, you know, what we have since rationalized and tried to figure out is that one of those people who was out moving along the road had armed this IED either through a battery pack or hooking up uh, a connection. But at the time, it didn't, it didn't make any sense. So I immediately, um, I'm calling out on the radio. No, nobody's answering. I don't know where this, like, I don't want to believe that this person just stepped on an IED uh, and I heard their, you know, maybe last words and, and you know, judging by how high he went, uh, I do 
I do assume those to be his last words. Sorry, going back to the um, the fire control officer. You don't know that person. Mm-hmm. You never you had never met them before. Just the um, kind of circumstances that you know you were kind of rapidly assigned to support uh, this this other unit at another base that was in contact. Um, you you just kind of by fate were you know put on put on the radio with that person, right? Correct. Yeah. The the only people on the mission that I knew were in the helicopters with me. I had never met a single person um, that was assigned to this mission. Got it. Never, never in training, never got to do a nice meeting with them. A lot of times when helicopters and ground individuals get together, we'll do like an air assault pre-brief where we'll get to meet them, hear what their objectives are, if they have any special concerns. Uh, this was meant to be a very quick mission that wasn't going to hit any hiccups. Um, so to my knowledge, actually, nobody did a brief with them. Nobody knew anything particular about them. And that's not atypical, but it's definitely not preferred, especially if something bad happens. Right. Um, right. Because now you, you don't necessarily know all the things that they want you to know about their very particular mission. You know, we're flexible and somebody needs our help, so we're going to show up. And that was probably at like an hour to an hour and a half time on station. And we generally were going to have two hours that we could be there supporting them before we had to go and get gas. I, I think we sat for another 10 minutes um, Watching, you know, it felt like 10 minutes, maybe it was five. Uh, this unit taking small arms fire, trying to return small arms fire, and uh, and generally not going anywhere anytime fast. We had to go get gas and we came back. And then after another two hours, we had to go get gas and we came back. And we did that for three days. Wow. <laughs> Holy cow. So three um, teams of Apaches <clears throat> that ran for that. that they didn't cover exactly eight hours because the nighttime guys generally cover six. But, um, you know, I had an extension that day. We had other teams getting extensions because this mission that was supposed to be like a one-day snatch and grab became uh, three days trapped in a death ambush. Like, in a, in a, they were completely blocked in. It turned into a, a, a an ambush that was... Um, just absolutely halted for three days. So for three days we flew, we call them idiot circles, uh, just off to the side, trying to prevent more people from drying, trying to deter more people. But um, I guess I would say we we're fortunate that um, I was present for the last casualty that they took. So nobody, uh, or the last killed in action that they had, nobody else uh, was killed as a direct result of the contact that day. Um, but I do think it ended up being like three KIA from that, um, skirmish that killed the, the fires NCO and, um, just all around super exhausting for, to come, to come back out and get your mission for the next day that it's still this convoy, support them for eight hours, trying to, you know, pray that you could de- deflect bullets, uh, for them, right. wishing that mm-hmm. they would take more shots at you so you could, uh, finish it. Um, yeah, it took three days to get them out of there before uh, they could get a convoy down there with the right tools to extract four or five disabled vehicles. Wow. wow. Uh, yeah, so, so you know, I think the, I mean, certainly a tremendously grueling experience and like, and, um, 
you know, I'm sure traumatic for everyone involved, certainly the, the people on the ground. Uh, but, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, being on, being on the line with that, with that fires and CO, you know, essentially it sounds like you did listen to his last words. Um, and, and, you know, you, you, you watched it, you listened to it. Um, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's an incredibly traumatic experience, uh, to have to go through. And, and, and obviously like, you know, p- semi part of the job, you know, as being in the military, um, being around that, but, you know, I, I think I just want to acknowledge like very few people actually go through exactly that and, and have, and, and get all the, um, the sights and sounds. And I, uh, yeah, I'm just, I want to say, I'm like, you know, sorry that you've, that, that that's something you had to go through. Yeah, you know, I appreciate you saying that. It's one of those things, depending on what job you pick when you're going into the military, I think you have a better idea of what your odds of seeing combat are. And Apache pilots um, definitely pride themselves in, in being part of the fight. Like, you don't take that job thinking you won't be a part of it. But I would say, you know, for me, I hadn't been flying that many uh, missions in country. Um, I think there was something especially frustrating about that entire situation about being so close, having such an intense, um, weapons payload that you bring to the table and not being able to utilize it in defense of, you know, in this case, fellow Americans and, and partnered Afghan, uh, military members. Um, you know, like when I was... I didn't even understand what really happened in that split second where, you know, hey, can you look over there? Yeah. I didn't know, you know, you know, but I didn't fully comprehend what was happening. But in the minutes of trying to get him back on the radio, um, I realized I was crying. Um, Not like incontrollable sobbing. I was still functioning and doing my job. But it kind of set in like you just watched an American die. And in some ways, at the same time, I was definitely blaming myself. I was like, how could you not have prevented this? He was right there. You had your sights on him. So it was just a medevac there. You didn't see anybody, like, plant this bomb. Like, how how could this happen? You know, and just, like, gently, uh, gentle tears rolling down my cheek. Um, as I was trying to, like, find the next person to talk to, almost desperately pleading for someone to come on the radio and talk to us. So it wasn't that I hadn't been prepared in some way, as much as I think you can be uh, for war, I think I was really caught off guard with how helpless I felt, which is not uh, what you sign up to be an Apache helicopter pilot to feel. You, right. don't, you don't take this very offensive postured weapon so that you can feel helpless. Like you, take <laughs> this, <laughs> you know, you take this choice because, you know, you want to do battle. You want to, to, you know, for me, I'm, I always bring it back to like, I'm a very much a protector and a defender. And I wanted to, you know, I knew, I knew I was going to go to war just based on the time that I joined the military. It had been a, my plan my whole life, um, to serve. And actually for a very long portion of time, it had been, um, my, my plan to fly. Uh, I just hadn't decided on Apaches until I had some friends get hurt. And I was like, you know what, if I'm going to deploy, if, if I'm going to have this responsibility, like I want to be able to do something. I want to be able to shoot back. I want to be able to have a say 
and if I die, when I die, you know, and to know that I will have done everything I, I could and I couldn't see a more honorable way than to do it in, in defense of others. Um, and so just, just struggling with feeling like you failed that person mm-hmm. um, because, you know, he's on the radio with me. He trusts me to look out for him. He has asked us to look for IEDs. He has asked us to look uh, for where the bad guys are, where the threat could be coming from. And with Apaches, there is a certain security that comes when they're overhead. You know, we hear it from individuals when we went out on missions, like, you know, we like flying with you because nobody messes with us when you're out there. You know, missions that I went after that um, because it was relatively so early. You know, I just I really felt guilty for a long time about providing this um, like what I felt at the time, like this is a false security blanket. Like they think no harm's going to come to them just because I'm there. It's like, that's not entirely true, but you know, they do feel better about it. Mm-hmm. And I felt really guilty for not being able to provide that, um, to that individual and to the other individuals that were killed, um, during, during this entire mission. Well, yeah. first of all, thank you for, for opening up and, and telling that story. I, I thought it was a, uh, a great picture of sort of the, you know, at least I don't know a lot of helicopter pilots and that what I was thinking about the whole time that you were telling the story is <clears throat> you've sort of touched on it a little bit here, but the you're so close. And as a former infantry officer, I can say that we loved having Apaches overhead um, and they're extremely helpful on the battlefield. Um, but you're so close yet that feeling of like, I, I wonder if you could comment on that feeling of frustration or, um, like helplessness that you're right there, but you still can't do anything in the moment, you know? And then to know yeah. that, that those guys are still out there and you're, you go back and you have to refit and do all that stuff. And that's got to be a unique situation to to helicopter pilots, really, at least in the, the battlefield. Um, and I, just so I, we're clear, and so you know, it's not your fault that that happened. But like, I'd imagine that's a feeling you struggle with at times. Yeah, I think um, I'll answer that one, and then I'll kind of go back to the first. I think I definitely struggled with it for the rest of the deployment. Like it drove me, uh, it drove me to be so like attention to detail, borderline like anal retentive whenever I scanned anything. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter what it was because I just felt like I had totally failed uh, this individual and then I wasn't going to let it happen again. And And it happened again and again and again and again, no matter how hard I tried because some of these IEDs are in place very, very well. Mm-hmm. And in all likelihood, the ones that were in place in this village were in place years ago. So there was no fresh dirt. They've been well impacted. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So how do, you, how do you reconcile those feelings then? Like, I didn't deal with it well. I beat myself up the entire deployment. Mm. I think I beat myself up uh, pretty badly for like the next year. Yeah. It didn't happen all at once. I felt really fine when I came home. Um, like tired, but fine. And... A lot of conversations when we came home for reintegration revolved around, you know, if you've killed people, you can talk to people about it. Mm -hmm. If you've seen people blown up, you can talk to people about it. But nobody said, hey, if you feel responsible for the death of others because 
you weren't able to intervene fast enough or you weren't able to stop somebody before they did this, come and talk to us about it. Yeah. Um, so like admittedly, um, you know, I self-medicated. I, I think I drank not irresponsibly, but I don't think my body was happy with me for it. Mm. Um, but it was, mm. was one of those times it was like, you know, I don't want to say everyone else is doing it, but like everybody else talks about like, this is the way they get through it. And nobody was saying, Hey, if you feel like you let somebody down in this deployment, come in and talk about it. I thought there was like a very unique failure of mine. And it wasn't until pretty close to leaving that unit. Um, and you know, you, you, you get ready to go on a deployment, all the people get trained up together. Um, and then slowly after you come back, you start losing people because they either leave the military or they start going on to different places. And pretty close to me leaving, I realized there were only like three or four people who had, who had been around when some of these things happened that, that bothered me. And I just like out of nowhere in an office setting said to, you know, not quite a friend, but as close of a friend as you can have at work, um, and not be buds. I just looked over at him and I was like, you know, I feel really badly about the people I couldn't save. Mm -hmm. And that's when he started crying. I think that's something we're learning as we do this podcast too, is that we all come home with some sense of like, did I do enough or, you know, replaying the game film in our head? Like if I would have just done this, maybe the things would have turned out differently. And Mm -hmm. um, I, Personally, I struggled with that for a long time, and I thought I was one of the few who felt like that. But we're, we're sort of learning. I think almost everyone has some sense of that from their deployment. It's, um, that's a tough one to deal with um, because hindsight's always twenty twenty, and um, you know, they're the stakes are so high with the decisions we make. It's it's difficult, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, the military attracts, you know, achieving type people, people who want to accomplish things and be effective and, and people who, you know, certainly make mistakes and try to learn from their mistakes and, and trying to learn from your mistakes, you, you kind of ruminate about it. And unfortunately, um, or, you know, and I won't even say mistakes, like we tell ourselves that we made mistakes, but a lot of times it's just something that happened and we, we probably had no no ability to affect it. We want to tell ourselves that we did. One thing I'll add to that is in the attack helicopter community, we do gun tape reviews. So we're actively recording the entire time. Right. Uh, everything, we're out there on the- everything you say, everything you do. Absolutely everything. Really? Wow. Um, I don't know if I was aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when people say really uncouth things to me on the radio, it also gets recorded for posterity. That's always fun. I'm like, I don't think they know. We should probably. Have that. <laughs> 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 because, you know, if, if we actually like deploy munitions on the battlefield, like they take that tape and they cut it and they make sure, you know, this is for everybody at home that's like, war is just terrible. We're out there killing people. Like yeah. the rules of engagement are very real, they're stringently applied. And and to know that, like, someone is, you know, they were watching us for profanity. They were watching us for inappropriate language um, as far as to, like, the combatants. So, like, you're having one of the worst days of your life trying to save people who are having arguably the worst possible time on the planet right now. Yeah. 
And, and like, you're also aware that if you slip and say something in your haste, in your excitement, in your just bluntness to get something done, like, oh, yeah, it could be used against you. You could lose your wings. Yeah. <laughs> and it didn't make you really feel... It didn't make you feel like expressing emotion in the moment. It didn't make you feel like trying to talk to your, you know, in my case, I'm sitting in the front seat as co-pilot gunner. It doesn't make you feel great about talking to the person like behind you. You can't talk between ships. Like this is all getting recorded for posterity. Um, So there is a level of almost like a sterile persona that you took out onto the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when you got off of mission, you know, if you weren't too exhausted, you could sit around and talk about it with people. But for the most part, it was to bed to do it again tomorrow. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and that's something that, like, I don't think I'd, I'd ever really unpacked until sitting here talking to, to you guys about it. It wasn't me on the mission. It wasn't <laughs> even, you know, you know, name, rank, and serial number on the mission. It was like this complete sterile human pilot who should have been interchangeable with any other pilot. Yeah. And, like, goodness about it but there's parts of the human condition that make that really hard to try and digest in the moment and i think yeah you know crying on the mission also not super approved that's <laughs> 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 something like i like brag about but it, it's i i highlight that as like despite all our efforts to be perfect little pilot robots like i was very much a human in that in that moment and it affected me in a way that you know i'm still sometimes piecing together parts of sure. yeah this is really wonderful and and uh um you know absolutely a, a, a perspective and experience that i knew knew very little about yeah. and um both like you know both in like the time of the conflict uh, that you're in afghanistan but then also you know just the kind of what's it like to be in the pilot seat of a of an apache um, so yeah, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing this with us and, and, uh, you know, I, I, that, that, that experience is, like I said, incredibly powerful and, and I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, I hope that you continue to find you know, ways to, you know, to like cope with it and, and continue to evolve, uh, and, and, um, find you know continue to find healthy ways to cope with it and, and your uh um you know like pat said it it wasn't your responsibility to find every ied out there and uh it's just you know if if by you know realizing that for yourself take some burden off of you i hope i hope you're able to do that uh and uh and yeah, we'll, 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 um, we'd love to have you back sometime and, uh, to, to hear more yeah. stories. Yeah. I appreciate the platform you guys are putting together. You know, it is helpful to talk about these things. It is even more helpful to talk about these things with people who feel understand it. And, you know, it's even better when you can find some people that, that you respect. And when that mutual respect is going on and someone says like, I hear you. And I hope, I hope, you know, it wasn't your fault. It wasn't your responsibility. It means a lot to me. And I hope uh, for anybody that hears it, I hope they know if they have a feeling like that, like they're not alone. It's really not as unusual as we all thought it was. Right. Yeah. <laughs> to take some solace and some good company. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's helpful to be the person hearing it too, you know, because you do, you, you realize that we're, we may not have had as unique experiences as we think that we've all, mm-hmm. we all um, are burdened by some of these same thoughts. So 
I really appreciate you coming on and sharing that. Thanks for listening to What We Brought Home. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe or follow us wherever you find your podcasts. Like we said at the top of the show, if what you've heard here reminds you of one of your own experiences and you want to tell your story, let us know. We're always looking to talk to fellow veterans. All stories are shared anonymously. Go ahead and visit our website, whatwebroughthome.com, to learn more. Thanks again for listening.